Hello and welcome to BAFTA Crew Online. My name is Ian Hayden-Smith and I'm with Fraser Churchill, who at various times has been a visual effects producer and designer, a digital effects lead compositor and um, a visual effects supervisor. His work on Children of Men, along with Tim Weber, Mike Eames and Paul Gobold, uh, found them nominated for a BAFTA for Best Achievement in Special Visual Effects. And amongst the many projects that Fraser has worked on are The English Patient, Simon Magus, Fast and Furious, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, The World's End, and he's currently putting the finishing touches on Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiars. As is usually the case, um, anything that we say over the course of the next hour are not the views of BAFTA. And with that, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, Let's, let's start at the beginning, because your career trajectory over the last 17, 18 years has in a way developed with that of the industry that you've worked in. Have you been surprised at the speed of the developments? Yeah, I guess that's the interesting thing, is that I got involved in the industry in its infancy. And so I, I came in kind of expecting to be a games designer. I left university thinking, well, maybe I'll work in games. I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to be an artist. I wasn't quite sure how to go about it. I wanted to use technology because I knew I'd, I was good at doing that. I'd been writing games and programming games since I was a kid on my ZX Spectrum and so on. So uh, I had a, a vague idea about how I wanted to, to, to do things but wasn't quite sure how to, how to go about it. So um, the, I, I got into the, the sort of visual effects industry by being a runner at a, a post-production company. Um, and then whilst doing that, the industry grew around me opportunities arose around me and I, and I was offered them and, and uh, it all worked out quite well. You've already set up the divide here because you mentioned ZX Spectrum. I had a ZX81. I was slightly behind you. Right, yes. We've also now given our ages away. Yeah, yeah. No, point. I also had a ZX81. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how, j just looking at your background, um, you studied uh, computer science with a graphic component. Mm -hmm. Would you actually recommend to people that they take a certain trajectory with studies? You know, art school, computer design? I think it's, it's, diff it's, it's difficult to kind of point in one direction because the, the, the best kind of combination of skills are having technical skills and creative skills. You know, so it, this industry requires both of you. Um, I think ultimately what's important is making fantastic images. Um, some people are very kind of technical and that's their thing. Some people are very artistic and that's their thing. And some people have mixtures of both of those skills, um, uh, depending on what kind of facet of the business you want to be in. I mean, photography, I think, is probably the key to all of it. Mm -hmm. I think sort of understanding composition, framing, what makes a beautiful image, um, that, that is something I think would be key to, to study. Um, drawing is, is always useful very useful to kind of try and express yourself with, you know, be able to express yourself quickly with, with little drawings. Um, understanding computers and technology is, is very, or was very important. It's, I think it's less important now than it was back then. Um, but I think, that, I think that if I'd gone to art school and I didn't, um, I, I might not have ended up in this business. I, it's, I think having, having the technology background, doing it of, of quite, what was quite a, a dry, slightly boring technology degree, Gives you gives you skills, quantitative skills, analysis, and and things that you, things that you don't then go skills that you don't then go go and get on your own later in life. Uh, you're kind of forced to do them, and they're, they're part of this kind of field of study. Whereas I think with art, um, it's something that you would quite happily go and do in your own time. I do, and people people do draw and take pictures, and it's fun. Um, 
learning about you know, algorithmic kind of computations and, and systems analysis is not something you necessarily go out and do by yourself. So, so I think that having, having that initial background in technology and kind of quite a scientific kind of focus was good because I wouldn't have done that later. Um, so having, d that, having done that, I then kind of developed my artistic skills. And I think that th those combinations of those two things is very key to being successful in this industry. So what was the technology like when you sort of, after you elevated from being a runner, what was, what was it like at that stage? Well, it was, I mean, we, we were using very expensive computers, silicon graphics machines that cost millions of pounds. They were huge machines. Uh, cameras that were connected to a, co to a computer. Um, so I was writing software for cameras. We were, we were, we were exposing video images to, onto, onto film uh, to, to make cinema commercials. And I was kind of helping to write that software and helping to run the cameras that would shoot each image frame by frame to film. Then we would send the film off to the lab late at night and then talk to the lab about the, the grading of that film. The film would come back, we'd put it on the Steenbeck so it's film handling. So you go straight from sort of sitting at the computer writing code to talking to a laboratory to um, handling the film in a, in a cutting room, looking at it and, and giving um, a creative assessments on the colour and then having reprints done. So it was, it was a really interesting kind of time because we, there were lots of different sort of things in play in terms of the skills required. Um, coding, film handling, uh, visual critiquing of, uh, of, of, of images. And that was kind of the start of it, really. It's interesting. Uh, last year, um, around the time of the, or just after uh, the release of How to Train Your Dragon 2, the team, the director and producers and some of the uh, visual effects guys came over to London to talk about it. And they were saying that, in a way, the industry has gone full circle, that you started off with these artists who were working purely on a visual level. Mm -hmm. Then you went into this period where you had an industry that was dominated by the engineers who were trying to achieve a vision um, through technology. And now that technology's got to the point where you can come back to the artists and everything is there, but the screen that they're working on is no longer binary, it's no longer numbers, digits. You are literally working with an image on a screen. No, that's absolutely the case. And it, it, the technology can be, the means of producing the images can be sort of completely invisible almost to the artist. And, um, and that's a good thing. Um, you, you know, you can you can sit there and you can create images and not be too concerned with uh, how how those images are being, you know, what, what the computations are behind those images. And I think we've got to a point in visual effects now, and it's quite it's only re quite recent this year or the year before, you know, last year, where you, you've got no idea what's digital and what's real. I mean, people might think they understand what is and what isn't, but but you're, you're mostly wrong about that. And it's it's you cannot tell when when it's done well and it's done well now with with big budget movies, you can't tell what's digital and visual effects has got to the point now where it's completely real and seamless. So you worked on Bridget Jones's diary, what you're basically telling us is that his jumper wasn't real. <laughs> I made that jumper in computer. Yeah. <laughs> Colin first got to thank me for that. <laughs> um, what are the programs as a prerequisite for being a part of the industry these days? What would you say if you're coming in entry level, you need to know? Well, it's, it's kind of similar to graphic design in a way. It depends on what you want to do. I mean, it's like there are, there, are two, there are two strands within our industry. You can be in production or you can be an artist. And, and if you want to be a visual effects supervisor, you should be an artist. If you, and if you want to go into production, you can be a VFX producer. So those are the two kind of different strands. One is organisational and managerial and one is creative. Um, if you want 
to be a visual effects artist and, and go on to be a visual effects supervisor, um, you'd need to learn Photoshop, be the similar skills to being a graphic designer in a way. Um, Photoshop, Illustrator, uh, learn, then learn sort of motion graphics, uh, After Effects would help. And then, I mean, the, the big piece of software we all use is called Nuke, um, which is a big, cumbersome, expensive piece of software that costs £5,000, which you're not going to buy as, as, a, as, a, as a student. Um, but uh, that's basically what you'd, you'd need to learn, Nuke, and uh, people still use Maya for creating 3D. Um, but any of the, the Foundry products, um, Mari, um, Modo, uh, Nuke, they all integrate together, uh, the sort of suite of tools that we use to make visual effects now. And if you're approached by someone who wanted to enter the industry and they <coughs> asked you, are there any publications or websites that they should go to, would you have any to recommend or is it just trying to get experience in the industry? Yeah, there's one called Art of VFX and it's run by a guy called Vincent Fryer who, who's got a very good relationship with all the VFX supervisors and VFX companies in the industry and every time a film comes out, he gets an interview with uh, one of us or all of us, talks to us very you know, very quickly after the film's been made and gives very in-depth interviews and that's a free online kind of website art of VFX. So any movie that you can watch that's got visual effects in it, if you look at his website, you'll find interviews with all of the visual effects key people talking about how they achieved those effects and, and it, you know, it's very in-depth and, and um, illustrative of what we've done. Um, other than that, I mean, there's the classic kind of the Cinefx, which is, uh, has been going for years and years um, and American Cinematographer is quite an interesting one to, to look at. If you, it's good to understand all branches of, of the imaging, of, of filmmaking in, in visual effects. And the interesting thing about our department is we span everything. As visual effects, we have to talk to you know, the cinematographers, we have to talk to costume designers, we have to talk to um, you know, the, the stunt guy, the stunt supervisor, because everything ends up being... There's a digital version of something in the film. There's a digital version of a costume or of a set or of a stunt or of a stunt man. So we're sort of, we end up being the kind of spider in the web, as, as it, middle of the web as it were. Um, so, you know, American Cinematographer is a good publication because um, it, you get a good understanding of the physicality of the logistics of filmmaking and lights and cameras. Um, and it's sort of, it's a good adjunct to Cinefx or on the Art of VFX website. So let's talk about the, the way that the role has progressed. <coughs> Who, you, you mentioned American cinematographer, um, but do you feel that in the, the time that you've been working in the industry, you've become more central within the filmmaking process as a department? Absolutely. That's definitely, definitely true. Uh, when we first started out, people were very suspicious of visual effects and, and, and visual effects supervisors and visual effects people. There was lots of hostility towards us from um, people in other departments, especially people in the camera department, um, grips. Um, we, we weren't liked particularly. <laughs> well, also there was the special effects department and people were afraid and they thought, well, you're coming to take our jobs and you know, you're, you know, you're just guys who work on computers and you're not, it's not craft and we don't like you, get off of our set. That was, that was essentially the, 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 you know, the attitude that we encountered a lot of the time. Now that's changed. I think people understand now that it is craft and, and that it's got a vital role in, at the center of filmmaking. Um, and you know, as a visual effects supervisor, I'm one of the first people hired on the movie, so I'll, I'll be there from pre-production to, to you know, the last shot being dropped into the DI before it's released. Um, so it's 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 a central role now, and you know, depending on the size of the film, 
as a, the visual effects supervisor is a key filmmaker. So it's, you know, it's, he'll, I'll, I'll work very closely with the production designer, uh, the stunt supervisor, the cinematographer, the director, the editor. Uh, I have to work in tandem with all of those people every single day. We sit down in meetings all day long and talk about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And you know, what, when it becomes digital, when part of the film becomes a digital effect, um, it's, it involves everybody, everybody who's made the physical version as well. And, and I have to be there to kind of understand how that bridge is going to work between those two things. Um, so, yeah, it's on a big film, uh, the VFX supervisor is a, is a key role. Let's um, just talking about the idea of, of what is um, a visual effect and perhaps what's a special effect and look at your BAFTA nominated work on Children of Men. Um, you've got one of the Corbold brothers, one of the three Corbold brothers. Yeah, Paul Corbold. Um, special effects. In the advanced discussions with Alfonso Cuaron about that film, was it very clear from the outset, and is it always clear, what will be a visual effect, what will be a special effect? Yeah, I mean, that's part of what the pre-production process is. I mean, it's, that's part of what I'm there for, and, and to, to, to sit in those meetings and, and decide and talk about you know, how we're going to achieve an, an effect, how we're going to make this image work. At what point does it have to be digital? At what point should it be digital? At what point should it be practical? Um, it's different for every film, and it's ultimately, you know, we, we have these discussions, and ultimately the, the director is really the person that kind of has to decide what, what that is, but based on, upon his key advisor's advice. Um, so, yeah, with, with Children of Men, Alfonso, you know, he absolutely knew that that effect, we weren't going to be sitting in, on a stage in a, in a green screen, we were going to be out on location shooting for real, and we were going to use effects to kind of stitch together various parts of the film and to, to add value and add, add kind of scope to location photography. Um, but we, we weren't going to kind of become studio bound. And there's, there's certain things which, you know, you have to glean from your director. What's his style? What does he want to achieve? Uh, with Alfonso Cuaron, it, you know, he, we understood, you know, he wanted to make this kind of almost documentary style film. He was going to shoot everything on a wide lens. So everything in the frame was going to be visible. He was going to tell the story by having wide frames and things in the background happening with things in the foreground and, and inf information being imparted that way. The, the camera was going to be handheld to give a certain kind of feeling. Uh, it was going to be, there were going to be long takes. All of those, those three things have vast impacts on visual effects production. So, you know, you have to understand that that's what he wants and give him solutions based around his vision and his kind of methodology. And within that, how have you found the role of innovation within your industry? sort of applying over the last 10 or so years? Just in terms of like new things coming out and coming to the table with new things, is it, is it kind yeah, of a challenge there, to keep up? There are, there are jumps that are made and they're, they're made by people who are, who are cleverer than me. <laughs> over in, you know, so so there'll, there'll be you know, an advance, so there was high dynamic, high dynamic range imaging, which was the big one, which has basically given us photoreal effects. And so we spend time photographing everything on the set and, and we recreate the set lighting and our look development guys use all the, all the reference photography and it, it advances in computing power and photography and some techniques have enabled that to happen. Uh, you have to be aware of that. You have to understand that that's happened. Um, you have to understand what's required to make it work. Otherwise, you know, you, your, your work won't be cutting edge or effective or, or look particularly great in, in the present day. So yeah, you, you need to know about these advances. Um, and is that the one that surprised you the most in terms of the time that you've worked in the industry? 
No, it's good. I mean, it's the, the one. It's great. It's made my job much, much easier because it, it, it was up up until now, maybe three years ago, four years ago, it would take us months and months and months to get a version of a shot that looked kind of rubbish, and that you'd be looking at it. And say, well, what do we need to do now? Now, the first version that comes out, it's pretty much it's pretty good. It's almost photo real, and so you, what you're talking about are the creative elements of of the film and filmmaking aspects rather than the detail of how do we make this um, fake bird look like a real bird. Um, that's kind of now taken care of, which enables the creative discussion to, to go a bit further. And, and, and directors, you know, because it's, it's, it's only happened in the last few years, you show them versions of things and like, oh wow, is that like, that's, that's CG? Is it like, yeah, that's CG, what do you want to do with it now? Because normally it would be, we'd be going the whole thing to get this thing to look real, and now it just looks real very, very quickly. And how much of a role in your work does research play? Uh, we, um, you mentioned before about if you're working in an adaptation, you will read the book. But do you tend? Are you someone who tends to sort of research? Yeah, I mean that's, the that's a great thing about our job. It's we, you know, you get to become an expert in a different thing for each particular film. So you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You know, Edgar and Oscar, who's Edgar's brother, you know, came in with all of these manga references and cartoons, and we spent you know the year a month two months, three months watching manga cartoons, looking, reading the comics that he was interested in. You know, it, it, you have to do the research to kind of get to the point where, you know, you're, you're making the effects work for the film because the, each, there's, a, it, there's a design question for each kind of film that you're trying to kind of answer. You know, it's like with, with Scott Pilgrim versus the world, it's like how do we make a comic book come to life? How do we make um, real life feel like a comic book? And, and you know, and so with uh, The World's End, we had these kind of, aliens who had their heads ripped off and there was a very a very physical kind of aspect to it um, and so the, the you know the, the question being answered there was how do we how do we make these things tangible how do we how do we make it kind of how do we make this physical and how do we how do we have the splatter that's required but it's 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 too complex the shots are too complex and the scenario is too complex for it all to be physical so the digital effects have to help and have to answer that question of how do we make this physical thing feel real um, and then, you know, with, with the latest film, Tim Burton's film, there's, there's, a, um, there was, there's a kind of big underwater sequence. Um, that and you obviously can't say too much about. I can't about. say too much about, <laughs> but I, I, think, I think that, you know, it's, um, you know, there's lots of research to do about sunken ships and what things look like underwater. There's, there's, a, there's a huge amount of research to do in, in, in every film because you're trying to make impossible ideas or very unusual ideas. You, want, you, you have to make them... You have to visualise them. You know, it's like, what does it, what does it mean for? Uh, I'm trying to think of a, of, a, of, a, of a question I've had to answer in that in that regard. Um, you know, what does it look like when this monster comes through the wall and, and, and pulls a child out of its bed? You know, how how do we how do we do that? How do we make that feel real? So what we, as an audience, see um, on the screen is is the result of of months of research and often years of research work. Uh, I'm just curious within the actual process, do you tend to find that you're working through a lot of experiments that don't necessarily kind of work out by the end and to try and find the perfect thing? Or do you find you're at a stage now with technology that what you envisage at the beginning you can achieve quite quickly? It's, it varies from film to film. It's like you have to kind of do, te you know, the experiments and testing is, is a crucial phase. And so with the World's End, that was a crucial phase. How are we going to make these aliens that have 
limbs that are removed, detachable and heads that are removable and have the, the, the damage and, and, and the, the splatter that's required from them. And so, you know, how do we have their heads explode? And so there were, there were a number of different ways we, we could achieve that, but the only way to really work it out is by testing. So I was working with a guy called Waldo Mason, who's a prosthetics designer, and we'd get wax heads and we'd chill them in a fridge and fill them full of kind of uh, viscous oil with blue dye in, and we'd, I said, what should we do first? Well, well let's, let's blow it up with a detonator. So we blew it up with a detonator, and it was, it was too much. You couldn't see the pieces <laughs> flying through the air. You couldn't see what was happening. Was that, what, how, what? Let's, let's just hit, let's hit it with a crowbar. So we put it on a C-stand, filled this wax head, chilled it in the fridge. We, we found out that, that made nice big pieces of shattering, you know, uh, head. And then we, we smashed it with a crowbar. We've got a stunt guy to do it for us. And um, that was the perfect solution for that. And so we knew that then I could go, then go away on, on with my green screen unit and shoot heads being smashed with crowbars. And, and that would be, that'd be one of our solutions to a certain problem. But that was only found through a testing process. Um, let's go back to the early days of your career um, and talk a little bit about your collaboration with Paul Franklin, um, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, is around the time of the English patient. Yeah, well, I mean, Paul and I, you know, we're founder members of a company called Double Negative. So we, we, we haven't often worked directly together. I think on, on that film, yeah, we, we did work, uh, you know, on, on the same movie. Um, we're doing something together at the moment, actually, which I can't talk about. Um, but yeah, I, I've known Paul for years, his friend, and um, we're co-founders of the same company. But I mean, we, we, we were both, in, that, in those days, we were both kind of digital artists working on the same film rather than sort of filmmaking collaborators, yeah. collaborators as it were. I guess one of the questions I have there is the idea of that kind of film where most people would assume there are no visual effects. Right, um, yes. How you incorporate visual effects, how visual effects were incorporated within that film. Yeah, there were a couple of kind of magical realism moments. There was a, a, a moment where one of the characters looks up at the rocks and he sees a woman's figure in the rocks. And I, I did the painting of the, the matte painting for that. So he looks up at the rocks and you see in the rocks, you see a woman's back and bum and hair. And that was a painting that I did and, and, comp, and comped into the image. And then there's a whole invasion of Tobruk um, uh, sequence. And that was uh, digital aeroplanes and explosions and flak guns going off. So there were some war sequences in there. There's also a, a parachute sequence, if I recall, um, that was shot on green screen. So, there, I mean, it's one of those films where quite early on, actually, when I think at the time it was made, they, they did have quite a few visual effects that were invisible effects. And obviously those are completely normal now and they're, they're in every single movie. But um, there was quite a lot of work in The English Patient that you wouldn't necessarily think was there. Um, and you mentioned that you set up a company together. and. One of the reasons I wanted to ask about that is just in terms of the wider landscape of visual effects and the fact that, in a way, it is, it is competing organisations. What's it like in terms of the sharing of knowledge and that, the sort of the landscape? It's of pretty good. I mean, you know, we're all, we're all quite competitive characters, but I mean, it's, it's pretty good. We're, we're, you know, we're, everyone knows everybody in our industry. Um, it's, the, it's like the film business. Everybody knows everybody. You know, you can't, you can't make too many enemies. Um, uh, the, the sharing and of knowledge is good. Um, we, we've got, you know, there's Framestore the companies in London. There's Framestore and Double Negative and MPC. Um, there's the smaller companies, and, and they all end up working on the same film. And so even more now, you know, they have to share um, scene files, and, and, and you know, there'll be there'll be a company working on 
there'll be a, say, say there's a shot in the film where there's a, a big map painting of a city and then there's a kind of CG uh, ship. Um, one company might be doing the city and the other company might be doing the CG ship. So they've got to talk to each other and share resources in order to make that work. And did it seem like um, a natural move to set up the company um, at the time? Because, again, London is one of the big bases. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. I was just tagging along. <laughs> I, I, I'd been in the business for about two years at that point. I'd, I'd not long been out, out of being a runner. And um, the, the guys who, who were sort of senior at MPC um, were approached by Polygram Film Entertainment to set up a company to do the film Pitch Black. And um, I was a, a, visual, a digital artist. They asked, they said, do you want to come and help set up a company with us? And I was like, yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I wasn't sort of key in, uh, you know, I didn't make the decision to set the company yep. up. We'll come on to Pitch Black in a moment, but um, I want to stay with small budget films. Um, you worked on Simon Magus, The Escapist, and The Jacket. Um, what are the challenges with a low budget or low to medium budget film in terms of realizing a vision? Well, it's low to medium budget films is just pure filmmaking. That's like you, you've got your constraints. This is what we've got. This is what we can do. We've got this much money. There's no way you can kind of come up with a sort of elaborate, expensive solution. So you have to come up with smart solutions. And in a sense, not that the, the world's end is at the same budget level, it's higher, but in terms of the effects that are in the film, we were constrained by the budget level. And so, you know, the solutions that we come up with were um, very kind of, I'd say, smart sort of filmmaking solutions rather than films with endless amounts of money and loads of the huge budget. It doesn't matter because you just say, well, we'll just spend another hundred, you know, hundred thousand dollars and do that. Um, but with those lower budget films, you've really got to come up with something, uh, think on your feet, work with the crew, get a solution and, 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 um, yeah, you, it's 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 nice because it does require that level of kind of thinking, and you, you're you can't. There's no get out of jail card. You, you've got to come up with a solution. Is this something you kind of like to balance? If you could sort of between doing the big budget thing or the smaller, or is it just one of those things with a larger budget, you just have that freedom of imagination and innovation? It's it's to, it's both things really. It's uh, the larger budget films. You know, they 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 are where the big visual effects scenes get done, that's where you're going to sort of get noticed, that's where you're going to be able to really express, you know, come up with something interesting. Um, the lower budget films, um, you know, you can do something really interesting, and it, but you, the, the, const the constraints are what makes it so, or what makes it good. Um, when I think of the work that they did on Ex Machina, and a Andrew Whitehurst and Alex Garland, and, you know, they were constrained by their budget and they came up with a very clever solution for doing that main character. Um, and that's smart, you know, everyone appreciates that. It's like, well, you, you didn't have all the money in the world to make that work, but you made it work very cleverly. Um, and I think that's, that's good filmmaking. You mentioned Pitch Black, and I put that in the same category as films like Ex Machina in that it's not a huge budget film. Yeah. But it looks like it. Yes, it does, because we put a lot into it. Um, I think it was not a huge budget film. I think they, the filmmakers probably got very good value for money in terms of the effects that we did. You know, it was one of those things early, we did it in 1997 or 1998. It was our big setup film for Double Negative, and you know, we worked every hour got sent, and it was, you know, it's, it's, it's full of love, you know, in terms of there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, that, that, was, that was our big thing. That was, that was all we did. It was, we had to do this film and get it absolutely perfect. One of the things I, 
I, I'm curious about with the film, what, they, what really stands out is the blend between visual effects and the production design mm. on it. Could you talk a little bit about the process of how you went about that? Well, that's the key to my job, really. It's, it's, that's why I'm, I'm there on the set. That's why I get hired, you know, in, you know first, first to first on the job, is, is to kind of sit down in rooms with people and decide what, what we're going to do digitally and what we're going to do practically. As, as the VFX supervisor, you know, you should be the key influencer in, 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 that, in that decision. Um, so I always find my sort of collaborations with production designers very rewarding, actually, and, and stunt supervisors, because it's, we, we design... We design these images um, very carefully. You know, you've got to talk to production designers. Like, what what are you going to build? Which pieces are you going to remove? How are we going to put the rig in there? That's going to have the guy fly through the wall. You know, where are we going to put the cut? How are we going to? Is that the best place to do it? Um, what colour should that be? You know, how how much of how much can you do with that rig for the guy flying backwards? Do we have to take over into a, into a digital character? Can we do it all for real? Should we do the main character and put the? Should we do a stunt person and put um, an actor's face on the top of them? Can we just do it with the real actor if it's moving fast enough? You can't tell. So all of these kind of you know collaborations and questions uh, are, are part of my job, and and it's um, that's the fun of it. It's just it's just it's the filmmaking's collaboration, and that's that's what we do. We sit down and and, and work it all out. Um, I, kind of a good example of working with stunts that. Are, fascinated by is the Fast and the Furious franchise. Right, yeah. Um, you worked on Fast and Furious. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about sort of a detail of, of what went on there? Because the pleasure of that film, unlike perhaps other um, effects-driven films, is that we as an audience are meant to believe that everything we see is actually physically happening. Yeah, of course it's not. You know, it's like it, they do go a long way to, to, to doing loads and loads of practical stuff. And all of the cars, they all of the cars, they, they get every single car. You know, you go onto the set and there's they've got, they've got you know, sixteen Chevrolets. They've got like there's, there's a ten of every car. They 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 buy the cars. They they smash them up. They have teams working overnight to repair them so they're ready the next day. But quite often, when you're shooting a car, it looks doesn't matter what you do. It looks like it's driving slowly. So you might be enhancing the road and making the road roll faster. You know, if the if the stunts a little bit too gnarly. I mean, if you look, if you've seen the recent films, I mean, the stuff that they do is. Kind of well, well beyond the bounds <laughs> yeah. of believability, and it's clearly, you know, visual effects. So I mean, it's 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 a very good, it's a very good combination of the two disciplines, really, Fast and Furious. And I think more and more they they're, they're kind of looking to digital effects because you can't. A car is actually quite an easy object to do as a CG object, especially now. It's it's a very easy thing to do, um, and uh, yeah, that's a, that's a film that combines both things. But they do spend a lot of time and money doing the real. You know, our, our job's made easier by having the real car there. Yeah. So we go, we photograph it, we scan it, it's real, we, we, get, the, we get it in the set so the real set lights are shining on it, we've got the perfect reference, and um, you know, we have to have that physical base for the effect to feel real. Um, yeah. you've, you've already mentioned um, American cinematographer and working with cinematographers. Um, have, you, have you had situations where you've had challenges about the, the sort of the roles where they merge, that, that area in the yeah, middle where I they mean, kind of blur. It's one of those things, one of my, my job crosses all of the, the departments yeah. and so it has the potential to, you have the potential to tread on people's toes and so one of the, one of the very key role things about working on a film set is, is understanding the politics and the egos of the people that you're dealing with and it's, it's, all, it's a very political environment, it's a very it's a highly structured environment it costs lots of money to be there every day. You know, a unit on a big film can be costing two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a day just to just to just to exist. 
So everything has to run tightly and harmoniously. Um, and, you know, I have to collaborate with all of the various departments. And if something's happening that I think is going to jeopardise an effect or make an effect more difficult to, to, to execute, you know, I have to step up and say what I think and say, you know, well, I don't think this lighting is going to work or this, we can't do this. We've got, to put a, we've got to put a green screen up there. There might not be time. There might, might not be the inclination to do what I'm asking. But ultimately, they, if it's a visual effect that's happening, they have to defer to me because I'm saying it for a reason. Um, and ultimately, if you don't do it a certain way, the money on the back end of the film, that can, the expenses that can incur because it hasn't been done your way, could be quite big. So I think people understand now that it's important to listen to the visual effects people when they're, when they're speaking up. Um, it can be a little bit thorny, you know, because it's, you're encroaching on somebody else's territory. Um, that's why it has to be done graciously with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know there was a lot of talk where, actually, I, I, just looking at the bigger landscape, not just your work, but um, of, of kind of landmarks, it struck me in the same way that in recent years, people, sort of lay people outside the industry know what sound design is. Yes, Whereas 10 yeah. years ago, people wouldn't have known that. Right. It struck me that there was a kind of mini revolution in terms of the public perception of visual effects with gravity, mm. where people suddenly thought, oh, so that's what it is. Right. I, I, I kind of get that. And it's really surprised me reading a newspaper, a general newspaper article, and I saw for the first time previews oh, right. okay, being yeah. mentioned. Yeah. And obviously people now understanding that. Again, that must, the, the impact of previews on your work, but also you talking about having these relationships with every department, that must be a kind of a godsend to be able to say, That's great. This is it. It's great. So, I, you know, you get to, you read the sequence, you read the script, and, and then you go away and you kind of do some storyboards and then work with a previous team or a previous, previous company and come up with a digital version of that sequence. Um, depend, and it's, again, it's completely up to the director what he takes from that. Sometimes the director will want to lead that previous effort. Sometimes they'll leave it to me to go and present him, her, with, with, with what I thought should, it should be. Um, but previous is in integral to what we do. And, you know, in pre-production, it's great. We can all sit down and look at, even if it's not what it's going to be, they'll be able to decide that that's not what it's going to be. So it, it provides a, a starting point, a discussion point for everybody. I mean, I've got to the point, actually, with previous where the director's liked elements of the previous so much he's made the props maker make the prop exactly the same way that's in the previous, which obviously was, was awful for the, for the prop guy. But um, It's almost like a director loving a temp track. Yes. And yeah, suddenly yeah. that becomes the yeah. thing. But it's fine. I mean, that, and that's what, that's what he, they made these props the same way as the previous. And it, it sometimes, you know, you can look at the previous and you can see, wow, that's shot for shot what ended up in the movie. Or sometimes it's like, well, that's absolutely nothing like it. But any... In any regard, it has to, it's, a, it's a great tool to, to start the conversation going. Um, and if, if the director really engages with it, you can end up with a previous that represents exactly what he wants and what's going into the movie. Um, we have a couple of people in the audience if anyone has any questions at this point. No? No, very quiet. Yes? Uh, I love Scott Pilgrim's. Um, how do you feel about the... It wasn't. Uh, uh, it was a bit of a flop. Yes, it was. Yeah. I, yeah. I loved it. I think it was an yeah. amazing film. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Like having so much work as a big visual effects film. I'll just repeat it. Um, 
you know, Scott Pilgrim is, as we discussed earlier, it's become a real cult film, mm. but financially it wasn't necessarily yeah. a big success. Kind of, what's your relationship with that when that happened? It was difficult with Scott Pilgrim because I was very intimately involved with that, and Edgar and I are friends, and um, you know we'd worked so hard on Scott Pilgrim, and we loved it, and we knew it was brilliant, and you know there was nothing about it that anybody would want to change, and um, and you wait for the opening day, and it's like the Friday it's coming out, and it's you read the trades, and it's like oh it's not tracking well. And then you, see, you know you look at look at the figures on Saturday, on Friday night and look at the figures on Saturday, Saturday morning and it's like all oh, right it's only made like eight million dollars, and then you realise you know by Saturday afternoon that it's flopped in studio terms it's failed, and it, it's it was you know it's very 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 disappointing. I'm not, I mean I mean I'm the visual effects supervisor not it's not my movie. So for Edgar and the producers I, I you know it was very very obviously very disappointing, um, but obviously you want your you want the film that you've put so much into, and everything went into that movie. You know, I, I, I moved my whole life. I had a daughter in Toronto, you know, to, to, in order to make it, and you know, it was it made at great personal expense. And um, and then when so when it doesn't do quite as well as you expect, or when it outright flops like Scott Pilgrim, it's a massive disappointment. Um, but what's been good about that is that over the the years, it's people like people appreciate Scott Pilgrim versus you know people come up to me and say oh, I've seen it 15 times I've seen it 20 times you know it's playing at Universal Studios on their kind of um, anniversary screen that they're actually very proud of the movie despite you know the, 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 the financial failure of it and I think over time you know they've re-released it on Blu-ray a number of times and um, there's a lot of fondness for Scott Pilgrim from, from very many many quarters I think the trouble with it was that people people maybe who are slightly older I mean, I'm 45, and you know, I feel like the film was made just for me, uh, with the references in there. But people of my age didn't think it was for them. It, se it seemed like a childlike movie, and I, and I don't know, I don't know how you could get around that. But um, it, yeah, it was disappointing. But um, it's the film I'm kind of probably most proud of, visual effects-wise, that I've done, and the, the, the sort of best memories that I have of sort of working, collaborating as, as, a, as a filmmaking team. It is that kind of odd thing that, from my perspective, writing about film. You look at the long term, and you you see so many films that flopped when they came out. Yeah, that well, Citizen Kane is now regarded. Yes, as yeah. one of the greatest films ever made. But at the time, no one wanted to see it. No, Vertigo. Yeah, was another one. And it is one of those things that it must be hard to be in the centre of the industry to step back and say yes, but you know what? It's going to be regarded as great in years to come yeah. because it's all about what makes money. No, it is. But it, it, in answer to your question, is that for that for if I was a director, as Edgar Wright. Massive disappointment, obviously. But for me, I got phone calls very shortly after from agents asking me to sign with them because they, the word, you know, the word was that the work was really great and the visual effects were really good, and there was nothing but praise for the visual effects in the movie. Um, so, it, I, I don't have that that relationship to its financial success as, as keenly as the director and producers do. Um, people can say, you know, it was a great movie, great effects, but didn't make any money, you know, which is obviously. I can ride that one out slightly. Let's let's talk about. It's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> let's let, let's talk about you. And yeah, thanks for giving our age away, bud. By, by um, let's talk about the the knock-on effect of, of Scott Pilgrim. What you just said about the fact that people regarded what you did as being very good. Your reputation is very high in the industry, and. How has it been over the last 10 years in terms of getting work 
because there is so much competition out there. Do, do you tend to find it is bidding for an idea, or is it you've got so many relationships? It's all about relationships, really. It's all about relationships. You know, it's, I, I made a, you know Edgar Wright was a was a key relationship that I made, and and um, that that was great. And then I was introduced to Tim Burton, and so we're working together now, and that's great. And hopefully that will sort of go on, and we'll do more. And do you have a, a kind of usual MO, a way of operating as you're about to start on a film in terms of, you mentioned obviously you enjoy the research, but the preparation for it, do you have ideas that you present or do you wait till you've actually spoken with the director and if it's one you don't know? Yeah, no, it's difficult actually because um, you read the script and you are supposed to go into a meeting with ideas. You want to go in and you want to feel like the guy that they want to work with and the guy they want to hire. So, But again, you don't want to come up with... I've done this whole of everything, and he's like, well, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's the director's film. So, um, but yeah, I, I always go try and go into a meeting with like, you know, two or three key ideas that I've thought about and, and with some visuals to kind of back, back up those, those thoughts. Um, it's one of, you know, it's, as, as, a, as a VFX supervisor, you have to, you're a filmmaker, so you have to kind of treat it, you, you go into a meeting as, 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 a, as if you're pitching your VFX filmmaking ideas to the director. And can you talk about the team that you, tend to use, again, I'm aware that if you're working on a smaller production, it's, it's less, but what's your sort of average team like? Well, it, I mean, it varies enormously from, from show to show. I, I never really have the same people twice. Um, it's, it, our production cycles are so long, so I'm on a show for two years, so that if I fall out of sync with somebody and they're on a show for two years, you, you, you almost never get back in, and maybe I might meet them again when I'm 70. But it's, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it changes from, uh, for every show, yeah. Um, and for instance, if you could talk about just working on The World's End and Scott Pilgrim, what the team was like on that and sort of what the preparation was. Well, that was, they, were, they were all double negative shows. So I was working at double negative at the time and, and they, were, they were jobs that were completely 100% done by them. That's actually not true. Scott Pilgrim was done a little bit by Mr. X, but largely they were um, double negative films. And so we had, the, you know, I had a huge team on Scott Pilgrim working for a year and a half. Um, uh, Andrew Whitehurst, who did Ex Machina, was my CG supervisor, um, and it, it was brilliant. It was a fantastic experience, um, just purely creative, designing effects. Um, uh, our, our, our daily screenings were, were, were a joy, um, and, and The World's End was a much shorter, more, more intense production. Um, we, we were limited by uh, technique. You know, I came up with a technique that would save money. So we weren't doing lots of CG, we shot lots of elements and the elements were being used, the photographic elements were being mapped onto things and that was a way of, of, of using physical elements and having the physicality required from the film but also a way of kind of keeping the budget level. You know, we, it, there was a certain level that we couldn't go over um, on that movie. So there were different experiences really with, with Scott Pilgrim being this kind of really creative environment and, and the world then being almost one of constraints, you know. And do you tend to find that limitation can actually be a good thing? Yeah, no, like I said earlier, constraints are great. You know, you, you know what you've got to do. You know how you, you know you, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't spend this much money. So you've got to find clever ways of doing things, and it, it forces you to think in, in interesting, clever ways. Um, you know, go out with your own little camera and shoot some, you know, stuff in your shed, um, and, and that makes it into the movie because it's it's you know you've got you've got to work within these constraints. Um, and what do you find as a rule as it to be the biggest challenge? Um, I mean, it's, it's forging, forging those relationships, I think, is, is, is 
get, getting, getting everyone on side with what you want to do. So you, you can sit down with the script and, and say, okay, this is what I want to do with the visual effects. This is what I need from this department. This is what I need from that department. But you've got to go into a room full of people who've been making films for like 20, 30, 40 years and you know, convince them that, that they, you're, not, you're not an idiot and, and, and be that, you know, that they should help you do it this way. Because pe people can, if, if they're not, if they don't trust you or they don't want to do it your way, um, it can be quite difficult. So I think that the, the hardest and the most rewarding thing is, is the collaborations with, with the sort of key filmmakers, really. Um, Let's, uh, as an example, come back to um, Children of Men. Uh, because one of the things that, that's so striking about that film is it has such a very specific visual style. Um, and the element of it is that it's almost entirely drained of color. Mm, yeah. Um, the discussions that you had with various heads of department as well as Alfonso about that and, and how yeah. you kind of realize that. And how, how difficult is it to achieve that? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, he, he, he had some key references. So, you know, we're talking about, um, so he talked with, you know, he and Chivo, the cinematographer, would talk about the Battle of Algiers. And it was a film that I hadn't seen. And so I, I went and rented a copy of the, bought a copy of the Battle of Algiers and watched it and just thought it was phenomenal. And it was, it was great. And so, so they'd had this, this key reference of handheld, uh, cinema verite, everything feeling documentary style, you know, Neorealism, everything feeling like it's actually happening, nothing theatrical about it. They, they, they're not theatrical filmmakers, they're realists. And, and that was, you know, once you understood that's what they wanted, um, you know, it, it made it easy to go along with them. But it's, it's one of those things that you have to be, as, as a VFX supervisor, you know, you have to be included in that, those stylistic references. I think there's people on the film that possibly don't get included in that kind of discussion. Um, uh, but you, you have to understand the director's viewpoint in order to be able to make the effects work for the film. Um, so yeah, understanding the neorealist sort of roots that they had, watching his previous films, Itamama Tambien, seeing the similar similarity of camera work, understanding the long, long takes they wanted to do with a handheld camera, and the, the sort of, the, the intensity of what they wanted to do um, was, 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 a good, was a good starting point. It's interesting watching that film, that one of the scenes that um, I always take away with me is the scene quite close to the start where I think he's on Fleet Street and yes, you have the explosion. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, I, I guess the, the challenge of looking at that and thinking how, much it, how tough it must have been is that you have that balance of a very real world, but it's just one day in the future. So yes. trying to create a world for an audience that is immediately recognizable as a proper world, yes. whilst at the same time making it just this, this thing that's slightly different. Yeah, no, that was the challenge. It was, it was kind of making, it's like, here's the world, it's 15 years ahead of now, but also it's regressed because no children have been born and no one cares anymore. So it was kind of the, the, the production design which informed the visual effects are one of like, it's the future, it's the future, but it's not Blade Runner. It's, the, it's like we're in Fallujah, we're in Gaza, we're in, you know, we're in a run-down place where there's, people have no hope. So it was designing a future based around that premise. And... Just thinking about the reality as opposed to wildly imagined worlds, is, is trying to work within a reality a, a tougher proposition in terms of your work? No, it's not. I mean, it, not, neither of which, not, neither's tough necessarily. I mean, it, I mean, Scott Pilgrim is kind of an entirely imagined world in a sense, but it has its roots in, in, in the real world, but very loosely. And Children and Men is based on, on, on ultimate realism. I think that 
uh, design-wise, it's easier to do things that are real than completely invented. Because um, you know, if you completely invent something, it has to be. There's a lot of work to do in that design process. It's like, well, what's this? What does this 50-foot high creature look like? And um, that often falls down to us. But that's great. That's a different proposition to what does it look? What does London look like? You know, in 10 years' time. So with that in mind, um, one of the things that I always really sort of I always think is a challenge in terms of the visual look of a film is how a visual effects team would work with light and how much of a problem does it tend to be if you have a director like Alfonso who says, right, we're filming on location or working on a film like Sahara. Mm. Well, that's great. I mean, having, having real, having photography, you know, having at least 50% of the frame being real is, is, is a huge bonus for visual effects and it's, it's the key to sort of making visual effects look real. What we do is we walk onto the set and we, you know, we get our silver and grey balls out and we photograph everything and um, once we photograph all the light sources, we know where all the light sources are, the computers now are so powerful that they calculate each and every light ray coming from the light, trace it back to the camera and that's how we get realistic looking effects. So everything's what we call ray traced now. In years gone by, we didn't have the computing power to ray trace everything. And so we did an approximation of, of real lighting, which was a little fake. And if you watch some of those older movies, you'll understand what I mean. It doesn't quite work. You don't quite believe it. Now, you would, you would never know. You know, we come in there with our cameras and we'd shoot this chair and um, shoot all the lights around the chair. And I could put a photograph of this chair next to a CG rendering of the chair. And there's not a person in the world who could tell the difference. And that's just, that's where we're at now, which is fantastic. So you've got people, visionary filmmakers like Edgar Wright, you, you mentioned you're working with Tim Burton. Um, is it the case now that not just that anything is doable, but anything is doable really, really well? That is exactly the case. And it's, it's good that we've got past this point of like trying to make things photoreal. Our whole struggle was, is it real? Does it look real? Can we make it look photoreal? Now, that's not even a question. Yes, we can. What do you want to do with it? So that's, we're now in a place where we're in a far more creative position. And from your point of view, um, working in visual effects, do you feel that you have an enormous amount of freedom? I do tend to be given a lot of freedom, yes. Yeah, I, so I, I get given a, a unit to go and shoot my material with. Um, I get you know, pr previous teams to given to me that I can sort of present ideas through previous. I mean, that's, that's just my approach to visual effects. I, I, I know no other way of doing it. I like to, I, I'm, a, I'm a filmmaker myself, I make my own films. You know, I, I, I approach visual effects as a filmmaker. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think people that I work with understand and appreciate that and give me the freedom to do things. And you probably kind of answered this question with Scott Pilgrim, but looking across your career, um, is there a specific moment that you would look and go, yeah, I, I got that so well? Yeah, I mean, Scott Pilgrim was great. You know, it, was, it was just a, it was a good time. It was, uh, it, was, it was a great collaboration. It was a great project. It was, it's, it's a film that will go on and be regarded as a great movie long after we're all gone. And, um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was, I think that's my high point so far. Yeah. And finally, um, with people interested in getting, getting into the industry, um, would you offer any advice? about what they should do if they're interested? Yeah, I mean, take pictures, take, you know, look at images, um, cut, cut your own things together. You can download, you know, you go on YouTube and you can grab anything on YouTube, you can grab as a clip with a little bit of software and you can put it into a timeline and you can cut things together. Um, you know, shoot your own films, make your own films, 
all of those things, all of the learn Photoshop, it's everything to do with imaging, you know, uh, draw. Um, but take photographs, I think, is, is a good one. It's a good starting point and understand why they're good photographs. Fraser Churchill, thank you very much. Thank you.